our uh, walk through the book of Romans, that marvelous epistle of the New Testament. Uh, Chapter 1 doesn't finish without chronicling just how bad the world is. And some of you may feel like, well, I don't don't need a reminder of how bad the world is. One author said, we don't need Romans 1 to tell us how messed up we are. But we do need Romans 1 to tell us why, right? Why are we in the place where we are? And too quickly, we'll blame it on politicians, we'll blame it on the left, we'll blame it on the right, we'll blame it on who's in office, we'll blame it on who was in office, various things that we can blame it on. But Paul doesn't allow for that. If your eyes are open, you realize just how quickly our society is devolving. You can, at the drop of a hat, announce to the world you're a different gender. And then if someone doesn't use the right pronoun, get them in trouble with the authorities. That's where we live. Could you imagine that even 10 years ago? How do we get there? Well, Paul chronicles why we're in this situation why we're in this mess. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1 for that. Please join me there in Romans chapter 1. Once you get to the New Testament, you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then of course Acts, and then you get into the letters that were written. And here we have Romans. And we saw last week that God is uh, revealing this good news to the earth, But now he is explaining in verses 18 to 32, that's where we'll be this morning, why we need that good news. Why do we need good news? Because of bad news. And the bad news is sombering. Let's just look at verses 18 to 23 to start. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What we see right away in this paragraph is the very simple but profound and honestly scary truth that God's wrath is revealed against mankind because of the wickedness of man's sin. God is not standing idly by. He's not just watching from a distance. He is actively revealing, disclosing, showing 
that His wrath is on the people of this world for sin. Now, it may look to you like God is His arms folded, back is turned, He's not paying attention, stuff is going on in the schoolyard, and the teacher just feet up on the desk reading a book, completely checked out. It's easy sometimes to think that way about how God is responding, or maybe better put, not responding to the de-evolution of society. But Paul is saying, no, 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 God's wrath is revealed against the wickedness of men. And before he explains how that's revealed, he wants to explain why there's wrath. So our minds might immediately go, in what way is he revealing his wrath? But other people who will take a hymn like Christ Alone, I think it was the PCUSA who wanted to delete that piece about wrath. Let's not talk about wrath. That's not the kind of God we serve. Then you don't serve Yahweh. So before Paul gets into what that unleashing, unraveling, unveiling of the wrath looks like, he wants you to be clear on the fact that it's very right of God to do so. Now, where do we often go? Well, what if people don't have the Bible? What if they don't have missionaries? What if they don't this? Guilty. Do you believe that? What if somebody didn't grow up in church? What if somebody grew up in a different religion? Guilty. There's another unpopular one. This sermon is going to be completely chock full of very unpopular things. But it only speaks to how far we've gone as a society. People are not guilty because they rejected an overt, explicit message of Jesus Christ. All people are guilty because they reject the truth way before that. Before it gets as specific as Jesus, they already reject it. And they're guilty for that. He says as much when he talks about this suppression of the truth that they have, that their ungodliness, their unrighteousness, I don't think those are two separate things. Those are two words to communicate one idea, this wickedness, this rebellion. That wickedness and rebellion is the means by which they suppress the truth. Truth is available and they suppress it. They keep it down so that they don't have to see it, look at it, smell it, touch it. They hide it. They stuff it away. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They have this unrighteousness and they like it, they cling to it, they enjoy it, and the truth threatens that, and so it's by their unrighteousness and because they're unrighteous already that they suppress the truth that is available to them. Now, what truth is available to them? Paul explains it in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them, you ask? Paul continues, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, admitting that God is an invisible being, you can't see him and you're still guilty for not holding to someone that you can't see. Why? Because it's visible in other ways. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Now, this is not, he's not going into a systematic theology of all of God's attributes. All of God's attributes are not communicated to all people, but some are. And he names two of them. There's a being out there that's powerful and of a divine nature. This is not a man. This is not people, and these are not aliens that planted a pod here and that became humanity. Well, where do the aliens come from? It just kicks it forward, right? It just keeps punting the question down the field. And he's saying, no, no, no. 
What has been revealed, what is plain to people, is that there is a divine being a divine, of a divine nature, of eternal power. And he says, having been clearly perceived, those attributes having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when man looks at mountains and streams and animals, creation itself is God's billboard for His divine nature and eternal power. Now, we can try to quibble with that. We may not like that, but that is the clear reading of what Paul is saying. His invisible attributes are displayed in the things that have been made, and it's been that way ever since the creation of the world. And they suppress that truth, they push down that truth, but it is available to them. Not all truth, but at least enough truth to get at those two attributes of God, that they are responsible to this higher being who is divine, who is powerful, who is eternal, and it's not debatable. In Paul's mind, this is not debatable. Look what he says. He says it's, it's plain to them in verse 19. Plain. And then he says, why is it plain to them? Because God has shown it to them. People say, well, how come God is holding me accountable for something he hasn't shown me? Au contraire. He has shown it. Well, I want it written down. Now we're quibbling about how he's shown it. But first, let's return to that first question. You said he didn't show it. He did. He does. And Paul says he's made it plain. He has shown it to them. And that these invisible attributes, look at verse 20, right in the middle of verse 20, they've been what? Clearly perceived. Clearly perceived? Clearly enough to be guilty in Paul's mind. It's plain, it is shown, it's clearly perceived, and because it's plain and it's shown and it's clearly perceived, last sentence of verse 20, so they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because they walk, wake up in the morning to the sunrise, and they walk outside, and they see creation, and they explain it away. That's why. Ever since the creation of the world, this has been the source of their guilt. He's not saying it's from the creation of the world just because it's old, although it is. It's always been this way. Man has always been guilty because of this. But he's pointing to the creation of the world because he's saying that created order was created in that way to reveal to man something about himself. Such that even when man fell and started having babies that had babies that have babies, and the farther they get from God, they always still have His communication, creation. And so Paul points to the creation order, not just to say it's always been this way, but to always say it's always been this way because it's been designed into nature to communicate who He is. It's always been a, a piece of communication. So here's the crux of the problem. 
man doesn't acknowledge God, but he has to acknowledge something. So Paul's point is man was designed to acknowledge God, honor God, worship God, glorify God, but he doesn't. So what does he do instead? He exchanges that for something else. So he doesn't say it explicitly, but implicitly Paul's communicating man sort of innately is created to worship something. But they don't want to acknowledge God, so how do they fill that hole? Something else. That's what he says in verses 21 to 23. Check it out. They are without excuse, verse 20, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Remember when we looked at Psalm 107 and we saw the irony of the reversal of fortunes? These people claim to be wise. It's wise to use evolution to explain everything away. Look how wise it is. You believe in intelligent design? Intelligent design, that's dumb design. That's stupid. You're a fool to believe that there's a creator. But that's the reversal. And he says in verse 22, they were claiming to be wise, but they became fools. And there's the the exchange. Instead of worshiping God, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling stuff that that God created. Now, here's the irony in it. The things that they worship are the things that God created to point them to Him. The very creation order, the very things that should be communicating to man that there is a designing, intelligent, supernatural, divine, eternal, powerful being. They say, no thanks, we'll worship the bird instead. We'll worship a calf. Or we'll worship images of man instead. So it's not that they reject worship, it's they reject the worship of God and replace it with something else. They may not call it worship, but as you look throughout history, all these different kinds of religions clamoring to get to this idea of worship, but trying to do it without Yahweh are the most overt expressions of that exchange that happens, that replacement, that substitution of knocking God off of His appropriate place of worship and instead putting things there that he himself created. That's why it's so foolish. Now, in verse 21, it says, although they knew God, you might be confused, like, how do they they know God? Well, they don't know him in a saving way. When we talk, when we ask people, do you know God, right? That's not really what we mean. He's talking about the fact that they were able to clearly perceive things about God. Just enough to make them responsible to him. That's what he means by they knew God. He doesn't mean they were Christians. He just means they knew enough about nature. They knew enough that there's somebody out there over us that we're supposed to respond to, that we're we're, uh, obligated to because we're created. That's the sense in which they knew God and what they didn't honor him and they didn't give thanks to him. You know, if typically as a Christian household, you might have been brought up in the tradition of 
like we do with communion, waiting till everyone is seated at the table with their food. I'm constantly reminding my family, wait, wait, wait. I get it. We're hungry. We want to dive in. But there is something, isn't there, to sitting there and taking at least a moment to acknowledge that this stuff didn't just appear on a plate. I really don't like the Simpsons cartoon. I get it, it's funny. But I stopped watching it long time ago when it was still airing live, but too many episodes would take shots at, particular shots at Christianity. And one of them, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but they're sitting around the table and I forget who was praying, Homer, Bart, one of those idiots, and said something like, Oh, we should say grace. Okay, and then the person says grace and says something like, Lord, uh, my father worked hard to pay for this food, and my mom worked hard to make this food, so thank you for nothing, I guess. Amen. And then they ate. Might want to take that show out of your queue. But that is the attitude. This stuff just appeared here. We did it. It's our agriculture. We can overcome natural disasters. We can, with technology, we're able to produce this stuff. Or, if you're ancient enough, you're like, well, I know we're not able to produce it, but there must be a God of fertility. There must be a God of agriculture. There must be a God in control of the sea, and let's image them and make a, a man, we'll call him Poseidon, and he's the guy we pray to if we want safe voyage across an ocean. And at the end of the day, whether it's with an idol, whether it's worshiping a creature, or worshiping man himself, the end result is the same. They don't give thanks to God. That's why I do commend sitting around a meal with your family and leading them in praying thanks to God. The mealtime is a very appropriate time to do that because it's over a provision that you wouldn't have if God wasn't pushing grass through the soil every single day, commanding that sun to be where it's supposed to be every single day. It begins with not thanking God for those things and gets worse from there. And the creation that's supposed to worship the Creator instead worships other creation. And even though they're supposed to acknowledge God, look at verse 21. It says they're basically they're too weak of mind and they're too foolish of heart to do it. This is why it's very tricky. It's very tricky. If you read this passage, you go, wait a minute, there are no atheists. Everybody suppresses the truth that there's a God. And so if I'm arguing with an atheist and they say, I don't believe in God, and you just say, yes, you do, there's a sense in which that's true but there's another sense in which it's a very tricky conversation to have because they're too futile of mind to recognize they believe in God. The truth is so suppressed, their minds are so weakened, their hearts are so foolish, they will pass a polygraph test and tell you, I really don't believe there's a God. So we need to be careful with just throwing this at an atheist and just say, no, you don't. I'm not going to talk to you any further until you admit that you actually do believe God because you're lying. No, they're, they're not necessarily lying outrightly. 
but their hearts are so darkened, they, they've, they're self-deceived into believing that that's true. They've already exchanged the truth for the lie, and they believe that lie. So here's the truth that Paul's getting at. When God is exchanged for a lie, the self-destructiveness of sin increases. When God is exchanged for a lie, the self-destructive nature of sin worsens. It increases. And we're going to see God's wrath is revealed. How is it revealed? By striking people with lightning? By causing death? No, no, no. Paul explains how God's wrath is revealed. As you might be sitting there still stuck on my intro. You said God is clearly unveiling wrath, but I see a lot of wicked people getting away with stuff. And I'm the one that got sick. My mom is the one that got cancer. They're all healthy and clicking their heels. Let Paul finish. He's not saying God's wrath is revealed in lightning bolts. He's not saying God's wrath is revealed in just pointing at people and assigning death. God's wrath is revealed in giving them up, in giving them over. He says that at least three times. I'm going to just show you real quick, and then we're going to walk through it at a brisk pace. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Then again in verse 28, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, what did God do? God gave them up. That's the expression of his wrath. How's that wrath? Giving them up to what? Giving them over to their own rebellion. And so here's what it looks like. Here's what's going on in this very dense, difficult passage. You're like, why do you bring up notes today? That's why. Paul's like, it's complicated. But here's what it looks like. Because of idolatry, that exchange, we're supposed to worship God, but instead of God, we worship something else. That exchange of truth for a lie, because of idolatry, God's response of giving his wrath to them is to hand them over to their own rebellion and to their own sinlessness. And when God hands them over, that rebellion gets worse. Because of idolatry, God responds in wrath. That wrath is handing them over to their own sins, which then get worse because he handed them over. Idolatry, gave them up, gets worse. Exchange, gives them over, worsens. We're going to see that in verses 24 to 32. Let's read the whole thing. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. I love how he just breaks into a, a moment of praise. It's such a dark, dense passage. He, he just has a moment of praise there. And then verse 26 returns to the idea. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you didn't appreciate the good news of last week's passage, you should now. This is a dark, difficult, profoundly evil world in which we live. And so again, he returns in verse 25 to that first reason. What starts the entire thing is idolatry, that exchange, that substitution of the truth of God for the lie that we're going to embrace instead. And it doesn't require statues to do it. You don't read idolatry and go, wait a minute, I don't have a statue. My neighbor who doesn't love God or who's un, you know, an unbeliever doesn't, have, doesn't bow down to statues. Idolatry is about substitution of the truth of God for a lie. Whether or not it takes the form of a graven image or not, but it's always ironic. It's always ironic because we're supposed to worship the Creator, and anything we substitute the Creator for is a part of creation. Whether it's animals or nature, things, trees, rocks, or people. Eventually, in societies, we might be too enlightened in the modern world to worship animals, but as we devolve, we just worship ourselves, and we become our own idols. I'll remind you, I've brought it up before, of the speech that Michelle Williams, an actress, not the tennis player, Michelle Williams won a Golden Globe in 2020. And she credited her success, her ability to win this award with her freedom to kill her baby. Here's how she puts it. As women and as girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not our choice. I've tried my best to live a life of my own making and not just a series of events that happened to me. What is she saying there? I want to live a life where I make my path. Not that things happen to me from the outside, but I create my future. I create my path. Who's the creator now? And she said, quote, and I wouldn't have been able to do this. I wouldn't have been able to do this, hold this award, win this acting award, without employing a woman's right to choose. Choose what? Let's be clear. To let a baby live or die. To choose when to have my children and with whom. She goes on in that speech to talk about If I read it correctly, she's pregnant as she's giving that speech, and she's saying, having babies on my own terms to protect my own career. Baby making has to fit my schedule, my career path. And if it doesn't, I'll kill it. And we should all enjoy that freedom. Ironically, as she's saying that speech, she's holding a little gold statue. And even further, to press the irony, at the top of that little gold statue is a spinning globe of the earth, God's created order on its axis. And rather than worshiping the one who holds that spinning globe, we'd rather worship the ones that are created within that globe by the Creator. We exchange the Creator for us, whether it takes the form of a statue or not. Now he gives an example of the worsening. You say, well, Pastor Lucas, you said that idolatry means God gives them up, and then when God gives them up, they get worse. Well, his example of the worsening happens in verse 26 to 27. 
God gave them up in verse 24 to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, what's, what's one way, what's a, a big example of what that could look like? He gives them up to dishonorable passions. And he gives examples of homosexuality. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, Many Christians even have tried to explain this away. I'm not going to get into all of those arguments. I want to take this on face value. I don't think Paul is saying uh, the one way you know a society has really gone wrong is this particular sin, but I do think he's saying if you want a clear example of a society that's down the hole, here's one way you know that God has given them up, given them over to their passions. There's no longer a restraint like there was before. And he points to this sin as a chief example of it. Such that when God gives people over because of their exchange, because of their idolatry, now what they want and what they do is sort of unfettered, unrestricted, unrestrained, and their suppression of the truth wins out in a way that they go further down the hole of sin and rebellion. And our culture right now cannot be trying harder to normalize it. So now you are persecuted if you don't wave the rainbow flag. And there's another irony, given that the rainbow was given by God to say, I will not destroy you for your sin. And it's like, yeah, well, forget you, God. The rainbow's ours now. No, it's not. That rainbow is why you're not dead. But sadly, many Christians today claim it's okay. They'll say it's okay to have the passion as long as you don't commit the act. But read the verse. God gives them over. He gives them over, verse 27, when he gets to the men, likewise giving up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing those shameless acts out of that passion. Can you imagine in Paul's mind dividing the two? The passion's okay. It's the shameless act that's not okay. The shameless act is flowing from the passion which comes from him giving them over to a debased mind, such that it's the base minds that are driven by the passion. Now, all of us are driven to sin. And this is not a passage where we point at homosexuals and just say, see, you are what Paul is talking about here. No, he's talking about everybody. And he's saying, as a society, we head in this direction. He's not saying every single individual person follows this exact path. Understand what I'm saying? If you are not with God, you're an unbeliever, but you're a heterosexual, that doesn't make you safe. He's talking about the direction of society as a whole. And so what he says here is that these natural relations were exchanged, these natural relations were given up. So God was exchanged, and then when he gave them over, they continued that exchanging, see? They keep swapping things out, and it gets crazy. Because now we're swapping genders, and the homosexual community doesn't like the fact that we're swapping genders now, because if you change your gender, but you were homosexual, but now you change your gender, you're back to heterosexual? Now you can't march in the the, the parade with us because you were on our side, and now you switch genders, and you're over there. What are you? 
I'm not making this up. You can see the YouTubes of interviews of people who are frontline advocates for homosexuality resenting the movement of transgenderism or the normalizing of gender dysphoria. These are like spinning plates that keep wobbling harder and harder until there's a big crash. That's where our society is. We can sing God Bless America, and I think we should, and I think we should pray it. But God gave America over. You read this passage, it doesn't sound, you're not like, oh, that sounds like Rome. I wonder if we'll ever get there. Rome, that sounds like America. If you read this passage. Well, he gets into this difficulty to show how far down the whole of society can go. And another thing I want to point out really quickly is when he says that they've already received the due penalty in the sin itself, some people would say there is no eternal punishment because people that sin now are already getting their penalty. And that would be incorrect. I shared with you back, and to save time, you can go dig it up when we uh, walk through the book of Leviticus. We walk through the book of Leviticus, and I shared with you some sobering stats as to why, well, even without Christianity, homosexuality itself is its own punishment. Not Christian stats, its own stats, depression, suicide, disease, the drug culture. Uh, they, they feign monogamy, but it's almost never true. There's almost never a monogamous relationship. It, it is oftentimes a culture of uh, sleeping around and all that kind of stuff. So you can go to that sermon to unpack that, but that is what he means here, but he doesn't mean that they won't be eternally punished. Verse 24, 26, and 27 that use a word that we translate as giving over, it's the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, when you have that sinning congregant and he tells the congregation in Corinth, hand that man over to Satan. Why? So he's eternally punished? No, no, no. So that he's tempor temporarily punished and hopefully he'll turn around and be saved. 1 Corinthians 5, hand them over so that there's hope. Same thing in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander are uh, false teachers, and Paul tells Timothy, hand them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. He doesn't want Hymenaeus and Alexander to be eternally punished. He's trying to save them from eternal punishment. So Paul uses the word hand them over in temporary ways in 1 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Timothy 1. And here, he cannot mean that, hand, that God handing them over, that's their eternal punishment, so they'll be saved in eternity. What Paul means is, God is allowing things to get worse so that hopefully some of them wake up. But it's not the eternal punishment. If we embroil ourselves in sin, it will not go well with us now, and then it'll be worse in eternal judgment. And that's not the only way it gets worth, worse Really quickly, we're not going to pack all of these sins, but here he provides a list of the different ways that wor the worsening of sin results because of idolatry and God giving us over to a debased mind. That debased mind does what ought not to be done, verse 28, and then they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. So we're not supposed to take this, turn it into a checklist, and itemize it to the point where we've got it, you know, this exhaustive list that covers the things that we need, kind of need to stay away from. And if you stay away from those things, you're good. It's all manner of unrighteousness. And then he's giving examples. However, the first one he gives off the bat kind of covers everything, does it? Evil. I mean, 
evil. He has other categories that cover everything. The haughty person, the boastful person is the person that does the exchange in the, in the first place. Have any of you ever not been disobedient to your parents? Now, you'd have to be really debased of mind to be like, no, I think I literally never disobey them. So, I mean, this, this is sweeping, right? This is sweeping. As soon as you're like, ah, oh, the homosexuals, he's like, and the envier, and the inventor of evil, and the person who disobeyed the parent, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not escaping here. No one escapes because we're all in this mess. Have you ever been foolish? Verse 31, have you ever been foolish? <laughs> but you read through the Proverbs and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I didn't, I, I'm not always that way. Have you ever been faithless? heartless, ruthless. Now, here's how he ends it in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Here's how Paul is going to push the category of your understanding of what people know and don't know. They know that there's a God. They know that He's divine. They know that He's powerful. They know He's eternal. He's above this temporal existence. And we're responsible to him morally. Because when he says, though they knew God's righteous decree, he's not referring to Scripture. He's referring to what everybody in the world gets, which is creation. And they know enough, deducing from creation, that you're not supposed to do certain things. There's an innate sense of it because God has made it clear enough to know that certain things are evil, certain things are wrong. And we increasingly live in a society that's trying to call evil good and good evil to switch these things to still claim that we're moral. Nobody's saying, I love being immoral. What they're doing is, let's change the rules so I can still be moral. You're immoral for not agreeing with us about sexuality, gender, and a whole list of other things. But there is a sense that they know they're betraying a God to whom they're responsible and that because they betray this God from whom they draw the breath of life, they deserve death. That's the bad news. Have you ever communicated, try to communicate the gospel to somebody and it's just not, they're just like, you're like, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross. And they're like, what did he die on the cross for? Yeah, it's because we're skipping this. We've got to get to the point where we talk about deserving death, that the wage for our sin is death, not having a bad time. Then you can talk about the good news. Then you can refer to what he talked about in chapter 1, verse 16. This gospel reveals God's righteousness. Why? Because it is the power of salvation for those who believe. So no matter how far down the hole somebody is, they can be plucked out because God doesn't only reveal His wrath. Within revealing His wrath, He also discloses the good news that you can get out. Even if you've been given up, even if you live in a society that's been given up, there is hope for the fool. There is hope for the evil. There is hope for the covetous. There is hope for the unrighteous. And that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And the way God set it up 
is to relieve you of this awful exchange that you've made, He provides a greater exchange. The thing that you gave up that got you in trouble, He gives uh, gives up His Son to get you out of trouble. You deserve death, and Jesus substitutes and takes that death. And even though we're guilty because we've exchanged God, God removes our guilt by exchanging Himself and giving up His Son to die on a cross. He did that to demonstrate His love. For God loved the world so that He gave His Son. So whoever believes can have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we bristle at the harsh terms in which this chapter lays out our predicament and the predicament of those that we live with, go to school with, go to work with, commute with, uh, enjoy meals with. Father, I pray that, we would, that our hearts would be saddened by how far gone our society is. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us for sort of hiding in a hole and just waiting for your return so we can just get out of here and forgetting that you've given us a mission to be those beautiful feet that take the gospel into a dark world and they have no hope outside of the clear revelation of Jesus Christ. They only have what condemns them in nature. Lord, they need what frees them in Christ. Help us to be that voice. Help us to be that light and not people who only retreat from a darkening, worsening world. We are overcomers. And there's no need to hide. But there is need to climb up on the rooftops and shout. And we need courage for that. Even if we end up in a society where we'd get killed for it, Father, may we be like our brothers and sisters around the world who do not deny Christ and worship you rejoicing in the exchange that you provide in Jesus Christ. As we close in the song, Father, work that truth into our hearts, enliven us and invigorate us to be on mission in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we close in the song?